There are certain phrases that we use that the meaning of them goes well beyond what the dictionary proclaims. A friend of mine who was not very good at counseling and proclaimed that he was not very good at counseling and tried to avoid counseling in every opportunity had one phrase that he used whenever he was in a situation where he had to counsel. And the phrase was, well, there you go. He said it works every time. He says if somebody's pouring out and is sad and is upset, you simply say it this way, well, there you go. If somebody is upset and angry and frustrated, you simply look at them and say, there you go. And in each case, it's exactly the same words with totally different meanings. Down south, there was a phrase like that. And depending on the situation and the inflection of the voice, it meant different things. If you were in a situation in which something good was going on, something good was happening, someone might say to you, well, bless your heart. And what that meant was, we're really thankful. That's a good thing. But if you had just done something foolish and you hear, well, bless your heart. What that really means is, how could you be so stupid? What is wrong with you? The phrase, whatever, can mean many different things depending on the context. But the one I want to talk about this morning is the one you see on the screen. I know. I know. We can use those two words in so many different ways, and it can have multiple different meanings. If someone's grieving, if someone's hurting, and you go on, come alongside and they are pouring out their heart, and you look at them in a gentleness and tenderness of voice, you say, I know. Those are words of comfort. They're words of identification. They're words of connection. I have young grandchildren. And, hey, Austin. And sometimes, now not Austin, but sometimes I'll hear, I know. Usually it's those that are real little and you're talking about anything and you're telling anything. Anything, it doesn't matter. And the next two words are, I know. I know. Now, usually what that means is, I'm aware that I'm young and little, and I don't want to admit how much of the world I still don't know. And so in order to avoid admitting that, I'll just simply say, I know. My next phrase is is usually something like, well, if you know, then why aren't you doing it? There's another way. We use, I know. This is the one that gets me. It's the one that is usually accomplished with rolling eyes. Don't you just love that one? And usually what it means is something like, look, do you think I'm stupid? I am so aware of what you're telling me. I'm so familiar with what you're telling me. You don't need to tell me. You ever get that? 
it's cold outside. Wear your jacket. I know. The roads are slippery. Drive a little slower. I know. Whenever you hear that, whenever you get that response, what's your visceral reaction? Mine is to hold my hand to keep me from going, whack. Not really. (laughs) Come here. But that kind of phrase can be a pain relationally. But that phrase can be deadly spiritually. I'm afraid that so many of us, when we're involved in singing the songs, the choruses we just sang, or hearing the, the story of Jesus in Nazareth, or hearing the story of the birth in Bethlehem, or hearing another message about Christmas, this is the, I think, 43rd Christmas message I've preached. And we have this tendency to just simply say, I know. It is so familiar. It is so common for us that its significance is gone. That's a danger. That's a danger in the midst of all of the activities and events of Christmas that we don't take time and stop and really interact with its importance and its significance. Now, we started several weeks ago a series that dealt with the people who missed Christmas. The first one we saw was Herod, who sought to destroy it. He was confronted with who will be sovereign in your life. Who is the true sovereign to whom you are accountable to? And at that time, we said that the meaning of Christmas is found in acknowledging the sovereignty of Christ. Last week, Jean talked about the people of Jerusalem and the religious leaders and how they were indifferent to Christmas, to the message, the the child born. They needed to make the the decision as to who is the shepherd that will bring true peace? Who is the shepherd that will bring true hope into your life? Is it the political system under Herod who gives you all the perks? Or is it willing to follow the shepherd Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem? This morning we look at the third group that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 2 of those that missed Christmas. In fact, maybe the saddest of all, not necessarily the most destructive, but the saddest. And that's the people of Nazareth. For you see, they disparaged it. 
the story of the one who came as the Messiah to provide salvation for his people, the story of the one who came offering the kingdom was simply brushed aside. When you begin to understand the people of Nazareth, you begin to understand the danger of familiarity that we are so accustomed that we've lost the wonder, the amazement. Now, each one of these groups needed to come to a decision about Jesus. Herod, who would be my king? Jerusalem and the religious leaders, who would be my shepherd? And for Nazareth, it comes to this. Christmas is grasping, and I use that word in a dubla entente, in a double meaning. Grasping meaning understanding, but grasping meaning holding on tenaciously. power of the message of Jesus. For you see, the rejection of the people of Nazareth have to do with rejecting the message of the one who came. Now, as you read in Matthew and you read in Luke, particularly those two books, What you understand is this, is that the message is proclaimed to those who were familiar with Jesus. They knew him. They knew him well. And the reason why is in Matthew chapter 2 and beginning in about verse 53, we have this story of how after they had been in Egypt, after they had left Bethlehem because of Herod's mania, in destroying that child. And they went to Egypt and they were there for a few years. They heard that Herod the Great had died. So an angel was sent to Joseph and said, it's time to return to Israel. So they began to make their way back to Israel. But on the way back, Joseph heard about Um, Archelaus, and how he was just as murderous and just as evil as his father. And so instead of going back to Bethlehem, Joseph returns to his hometown, Nazareth. Now, none of you have the response of a first century Jewish person. But in the first century, if I had said Nazareth, you all would have said or thought, where's that? Where's Nazareth? When people ask us where we were before we came to, to this area, to, to Grace, I'll usually say we were in the New Orleans area. And the reason is because no one knows what Slidell is. If you say you're a New Orleanian, they all go, oh. If you say I'm a Slidelite, they go, huh? Or Slidelian. I never could figure out which one was right. You see, Nazareth was this insignificant little town. There were no major roads that went through Nazareth. There were no huge products that came out of Nazareth. 
Nazareth was just a little sleepy bedroom community. We'll talk about that in just a moment. That was kind of out of the way. In fact, Nazareth was so insignificant. We know it because of Jesus' story. But Nazareth was so insignificant that for years they couldn't find any reference to it in any of the ancient writings. Josephus doesn't mention it. The writers of the, you know, 1 BC and, or, you know, the first century BC or the first century AD, they don't mention Nazareth until the birth of Jesus. It was so insignificant that archaeologists used to say, I don't even think it exists. Wrong. They began to find ostracism. You know what ostracisms are? Ossuaries are when they would bury their dead inside of the tombs. They would wait a year till everything was um, rotted away. And then they had these little boxes and they'd scoop up all the bones and stick them inside the ossuaries and that's where they would store the bones. Well, back several decades ago, they began to find these ossuaries with Jewish names on it in the area where the village of Nazareth would have been. Then in about 1969, they began to find coins. There were Roman coins of the time that Jesus would have been there and living there. And then back in 97, 98, they began to find pottery and they found a house. In 2015, they found another house. And lo and behold, Nazareth existed. Nazareth probably was a bedroom community, like Slidell. Nothing really significant in and of itself. But Slidell, most of the people, many of the people that worked there drove into New Orleans each day. Well, Nazareth was about two or three miles away from a huge town called Sephoris. And we know that during the time of Herod the Great, it had been destroyed. And during the time of Herod Antipas, the time when Jesus lived in Nazareth, it was being rebuilt. What was Jesus' father's occupation? What was he? Nope. He was a builder. The word carpenter means more than just a carpenter. In other words, he was a general contractor. Right, Tim? Where would a general contractor work? The big city, building it up. Nazareth was nothing. Insignificant. No one would have known Nazareth. But it was also a town that was disparaged by the elite. It was a good Jewish town, but it had no real teachers. It was not mentioned in prophecy. Nothing important or no one important up to the time of Jesus ever came from Nazareth. So much so that as they were talking about Nazareth and Philip came to know about Nazareth, He went and he spoke to his friend, 
And you can find it in John chapter 1 and verse 44 as they're interacting about this little town. Let me just find it here in a second. And in John chapter 1, as the disciples of John the Baptist are speaking about this one Jesus, in verse 44, it says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, near Nazareth. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And then listen to Nathanael's response. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It was despised. It was insignificant. And yet, it was a town that was honored with the coming of the promised one. The one that both saw and heard the message of Jesus. They grew up with him. They saw him running around the village. They saw him helping his father. They saw him doing the construction on their homes and doing the different work that needed to be done. They were so aware of who Jesus was. And it's to those who knew him best that Jesus came with the message. But there's a problem. The problem is this. That the message is often rejected. Ignored. Dismissed. Disparaged. By those to whom it is most familiar. I know. In a roll of the eyes. Now, what Matthew tells us is that when Jesus had finished his time in Jerusalem, when Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, when Jesus had been anointed in a unique way by the presence in a visible sense at his baptism, after he had spent that time in the wilderness being tempted, He began his ministry and the news about him began to spread all over. Jesus came to Nazareth. Probably very early in his ministry. Matthew has it a little later. Matthew has it in Matthew 13. Luke has it in Luke chapter 4. Matthew is thematic. He's trying to show a theme of rejection. But Luke... Luke is probably more chronological. But Matthew says when Jesus came and after he'd been doing these miracles and after his teaching had become known and after he'd made his way from Jerusalem up to the places in which he had been raised, 
In Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 54, it says, where did this man get this wisdom and the miraculous power, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? We know him. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Jude? Aren't they here? Don't we know all them and his sisters? By the way, it shows that all those miracle stories about Jesus when he was a child are bunk. They were written centuries after Jesus um, had come and was, was resurrected and ascended. You know, the stories about how he made birds out of clay and then they turned real and flew away. Or how a group of children were mocking him one day and he sort of whacked them dead. That's just ridiculous. But you see, if he'd been doing all all that stuff, they would have said, oh yeah, we know Jesus. We know what he can do. No, they said, who the heck is this? He's just a kid from Nazareth. Now, a particularly well-behaved child. Maybe a particularly knowledgeable child. But he's just one of the kids. If you go back and if you go back to First Baptist Church in Allentown, they still call me the ones that are still around, and there's few of them left. They still call me Keithy. Don't do it. <laughs> I just want to remind you never insult the one who has the pulpit last. Why? That's just Keith. The kid that used to lock the bathroom stalls and crawl out underneath. The kid whose mom one day had to carry him out of church because he was being so bad and screaming on the way out, please don't beat me! Please don't beat me! It's just a kid. And so Jesus comes to Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, he begins to teach them. And initially, the response is just wonder and amazement. He went to Nazareth, as Gene read, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he looked through it, and he found the passage he was looking for. And he read, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind and the release of those who are oppressed. And the people of Nazareth are going, yes, he's one of ours. Rolled up the scroll and he sat down and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled among you. I'm he. I'm that one. And initially they spoke well of him, amazed at the gracious words. And they began to say, he's just Keithy. Now, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, please. But I'm just simply, they're saying, he's one, there's the boy. But then his message got convicting. And when we read the message, we miss what Jesus is saying. Because we're not quite as familiar with Jewish history. But he goes on to say, you know, when Elijah and Elisha were alive, 
the greatest ministry they had and the greatest miracles they did were among the Gentiles. And he was trying to convict the people of Nazareth about their indifference. And what did they do? They grabbed hold of him. They pushed him out of the city. And they were about to throw him off a cliff. That's just Jesus. Who does he think he is? Why would they do that? I think it was because of their familiarity. You see... I'm having trouble with this today. Let me just try something here. All right. Not sure what's going on. There we go. There we go. What was going on? What was going on was this. They believed that they knew him so well. They knew the message so well that their sense of wonder was gone. This morning as we were praying to come in, the person that was praying said these words, and they just struck me because I knew what the message was. They were praying and said, God, please help us to understand the significance of of the words that we sing. We sing them so often that we forget how important, how significant they really are. How many Christmas services have you been to? How many Christmas sermons have you heard? How many Christmas carols have you sung and choruses have you sung? And they don't even strike us anymore. They have no significance. How many times have we read the story of Jesus in the gospel accounts and it's just a rolling of the eyes and uh, here we go again. And the sense of wonder That when that babe was born, it was the God of the universe taking on human form and allowing us to see in a visible reality that God so cared about his creation, mankind, that he was willing to take upon himself flesh to die, to be resurrected, to ascend to the Father, and to come again to establish his kingdom. And we lose the wonder and the significance. As Jesus was speaking to the churches in Asia Minor and to one of them, he comes and says, you've lost your first love. The, the, the joy, the celebration of the relationship, it's not there anymore. Now, that's not unusual for God's people. 
You see it all the way through Scripture and beginning in January. We're going to talk about the whole idea of renewal and God's revival of our spiritual lives. But we need not to stay there. When that becomes the reality of my soul, it's not simply to say, oh, well, I guess I'm just too accustomed to it. But rather, it calls forth in us a response, much the the response of those in Psalm, in Psalm 85, when the psalmist writes, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and and give us a a sense of your, your love and your covenant and your care. Lord, allow your spirit to wake us up. Christmas is just that season again that's so busy and such a burden and all the rest. Then take some time this season to say, Lord, allow your spirit to bring the wonder again. If coming on Sunday mornings is just that thing we got to do and get the kids going, then ask God's spirit to revive me again. But I think there's another reason why we tend to reject the power of the message. And we saw that in the John passage. And that's because we begin to believe the world's disparaging attitude about the power of the gospel. We begin to believe what Nathaniel said. Can anything good come out of that message? It is true that the world works hard to remove the message of Jesus from the public square. And if you were to listen to what the world says, it will say things like, religion causes all the problems. Religion just damages. Religion just makes things worse. Sometimes we begin to believe that. As I've been studying to get ready for the whole messages on renewal, I've been able to have opportunity to go back and to read some of the times when God would revive his people. And one of the things you begin to understand is when you look at every major social change that has ever taken place since the time of Jesus, not all, but almost every social change that has taken place from the time of Jesus is a result of the message of Jesus. Now, not necessarily the church. Sometimes the church has blown it. Big time. But when God's people grab a hold of the message of Jesus, it revolutionizes them and their societies. We can go back to the first century. The slow decline and then the removal of the gladiatorial games and the blood sports of Rome came as a result of the message of Jesus. The laying of children on the banks of the river because they were unwanted came to an end because of the message of Jesus. Chattel slavery, which is the, the bane 
so much of our society for so many centuries ended because of the message of Jesus. Men like William Wilberfort or John Newton. In fact, I read one quote of a man who had studied that whole thing, a man by the name of Hardiman. He said this, the abolitionist movement itself was essentially a a movement to reinstate Christian morality in the South. If it were not for Christianity and with that Christian morality, there would have been no abolitionist movement and slavery would not have ended when it did. That's the power of the message of Jesus. That same foundation continued through the decades that followed emancipation. And you can read about men like Henry Turner and Benjamin May, Joseph Nicholson, Richard McKinney, George Kelsey, Howard Thurman, names that you don't know. In fact, too many in the African-American community don't know those names. But those were the theologians and spokesmen who, because of their faith in the message of Jesus Christ, began to lay the foundation that would erupt in the late 50s and 60s with the, with the movement of um, freedom through Martin Luther King Jr. and others. In fact, these were the theologians that MLK read. It was the message of the gospel. In the book, Strength to Love, it's a compendary of of the messages of Martin Luther King. Who, by the way, when you hear the seculars talk about him, they say, Dr. Martin Luther King. Do you know how King referred to himself? Reverend Dr. Martin Luther message of the gospel was central to his message. And I'm not trying to appropriate MLK as a white evangelical. We blew it. But I will stand with him in the message of the gospel. Martin Luther King wrote this, or preached this, the greatest of all virtues is love. Here we find the true meaning of the Christian faith and of the cross. Calvary is the telescope through which we look into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking into time. Out of the hugeness of his generosity, God allowed his only begotten son to die that we might live. That's the gospel. He went on to say in another sermon, We need to recapture the gospel glow of the early Christians who were nonconformist in the truest sense of the word and refused to shape their witness according to the mundane patterns of the world. Willingly, they sacrificed fame, (coughs) fortune, and life itself on behalf of the cause they knew to be right. Quantitatively small, but qualitatively giants. Their powerful gospel put an end to such barbaric evils as infanticide and blood gladiatorial games, and he goes on. He's declaring that it is the gospel, the message of Jesus, when it is accepted and grasped and held on to and proclaimed by the people of God that brings about change. 
I can tell you about a man that I met, Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian, who marched with King and was there in Selma and helped to organize Selma. And after a seminar in which I was with him, came up afterwards and we talked about it. And he asked me, Keith, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And here were his words. It is only the message of the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ that can bring healing in the midst of the struggles of racism in our society. We can talk about Burl Kane, who was the warden in Angola prison in Louisiana that went from one of the deadliest prisons to one of the safest prisons. And what he says is, if they embrace the genuine change of heart brought about by Christ, their lives are changed. And that was the foundation of his leadership in Angola. And in fact, you look at the missionary movement that went out, the colonial missionary movement, where people were called upon to to convert to, to the message of Jesus, and that's condemned, and it's hated by the world. But yet some of the, the research done by Woodbury conclusively demonstrates, without a doubt, that those kinds of missionaries were crucial catalyst initiating the development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations, and colonial reforms. That was the power of the message, not necessarily the people themselves. Do you know in Hong Kong right now with the, the, the protests that are going on, do you know what their theme song is? Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Did you hear that in the secular press? It's been used by the protesters in order to keep calm in the midst of their fight for freedom. We can talk about the impact of the gospel of Christ on human trafficking. Or I can tell you about what happened after Hurricane Katrina when I stood with the director of FEMA for our area, and she looked at the guys, the men and women that were gathered in the churches, and she said this, you know what? In a year, the federal government won't be here anymore. But it will be the faith-based organizations that will have the greatest impact and power. I can take you with me. We can talk to the mayor of Slidell or the parish president. That's the county official leader of St. Tammany Parish. Or I can show you the commendation the church has received from the governor of Louisiana. And all of them proclaimed if it wasn't for the church. Those that embraced, grasped the gospel and the message of Jesus nothing would have changed. Beloved, don't believe what the world says. Learn your history. Read it. And you'll find that those who have grasped the message of the gospel have brought about the greatest changes in our society. You see, the last thing we need to understand is this. That the message is transforming for those who embrace it fully. It changes our lives. 
I love when we come together. When we share like we did right before Thanksgiving and I hear about how the gospel changes your life and changes your life and changes your life and changes your life and I get to share about how the gospel changes my life and we begin to understand that the message of Jesus, the message that the very creator of the universe loved me so much, loved you so much that he was willing to come and take upon himself flesh to die on a cross to pay my penalty for sin. So that this morning when I swung my legs out of bed and I put them down on our rug floor, I can say, God, thank you that I'm loved. And I know that I'm accepted. And I know that whatever errors and mistakes I might make today, I am surrounded by your grace and accepted by your love. Thank you that my life this morning has purpose and meaning and direction because I understand that I'm a part of something that's not just bigger than me. I'm a part of something that is infinite and eternal. Paul simply proclaimed it this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The the good news, that's what the word gospel means, the message. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jews, then the Gentiles. For in the gospel, A, and watch this word, righteousness, right relationship with God is revealed. And if I'm right with God, What else matters? For he is in control of my life and leading it in a direction that will bring praise and glory and honor to him. Jesus brings his message to those who are most familiar with it. But too often, those who are most familiar with it reject it. Either because of that familiarity or believing the lies of the world. But God's word, when grasped, becomes the greatest power of change in an individual, in a family, in a community, in a nation. When the worship team comes up, we're going to sing this song. It kept going through my mind all week long as I was studying. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder, wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. My song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me, for all who accept Christ as their Savior, can know for certain of that relationship, can know for eternity they are surrounded by grace, and can pray to the Spirit and say, God, I've lost the wonder. Will you allow your Spirit to bring it back? Father, thank you for the amazing message of Scripture. May we be those who truly find wonder in what you have done and accomplished, remembered through the message of Christmas, proclaimed throughout the entirety of the gospel. If there's someone here who's not certain of that relationship, we invite them to come to me or 
to anyone here and ask how that can be known and certain. Father, those of us who know it well, help us to be renewed with the wonder and the amazement. And we ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.